Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the taproom with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Who's our first guest? Our first guest co-founded Kings County Brewers Collective in the Bushwick neighborhood in the borough of Brooklyn in New York City. Once a hub of American beer brewing through the first half of the 20th century, when at their height, 44 Brooklyn breweries produced 10% of the beer in America. The last of the Brooklyn breweries closed in 1976. Bushwick, which once boasted a brewer's row of 14 breweries in a 14-block area, suddenly had none. That is, until our next guest, an accomplished home brewer and his two home brewer friends, opened KCBC in Bushwick in 2016, 40 years after the last of the breweries left the neighborhood. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Zach Kenny. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. So yeah. let, let's dive in. When did you first experience craft beer, and was there an aha moment with a specific beer that kind of got you rolling? Uh, good question. Uh, so um, uh, I grew up in a really small town in eastern Washington State. Um, Where? Lived in a bunch of different places. It's called, uh, the town's called Medellin Falls. Population's about 207 people. Oh, well, I, li- um, I lived in Curlew, Washington, which had a population of about 500 people, which is about two hours uh, west of Spokane, Washington. I know. I know Curly. We used to play them in high school, like football and basketball. <laughs> they were B, a B, Division B school yes, district. Yes, which is yes, summer. we were. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we were. Holy, Wait, hold on. Did you guys, did you guys play each other? No. no did you yes, guys play each yes. other? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I mean, we, we might have. I don't know. Yeah. Are you, you know, the same I, year? What year were you born, Zach? I was born in 1978. Oh, oh, my God. You guys played each other for so sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No kidding. We definitely played. We, then, then I mean, you know, we were, our football team at Selkirk was pretty bad. Honestly, I'm not. Oh, kidding. wait a second. Like, wait, you went to Selkirk? I went to Selkirk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you okay. kidding me? This is amazing. no. Holy probably, crap, we, dude! We, we this is awesome. This yes. is so. I'm, I, I have to go back, and now I'm going to go dig through some old. old yes, like you know, I, I was I, there. I, I, uh, my graduation year, I came back from my senior year to come to Miami uh, and uh, graduated here, <laughs> but. Um, Freshman, sophomore, and junior year, I played football and uh, basketball for for Curlew. We played each other. We absolutely played each okay. other. So I was, I was okay. football, basketball, based small town, you know, okay. small school. You're like, well, okay. I'm, I'm kind of athletic. I guess I'll, you know, uh, yes. keep busy. You know, it's either yes. that or like awesome. throw rocks off the bridges. You know, small town <laughs> life. You know? Yeah. Wow, man! I can't wait to talk to you guys more about this. So, yeah. what was the question? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was the question? Yes. Yeah. Oh, football, football, beer, beer, football. Sports. Right, right. Uh, right. No. Uh, so, um, uh, in my in my tiny town, my my um, Medellin Falls, um, uh, my dad my dad had grown up there in that in that town, and um, uh, uh, sometime when he was in college at Washington State University. Um, he started making beer, you know, just making very bad homebrew at that point in okay. the 70s because, you know, the options were, were pretty limited exactly. um, in terms of ingredients and whatnot. But he kept it up. And was, as I was growing up as a kid, 
my dad was always homebrewing in our basement. You know, this was like the early days. He entered his his pale ale into one of the first like you know you know national home national beer homebrew competitions because at one point they were combined. Um, and there's a brewery called Hales Ales um, that um, used to operate out of Colville, and then they, yes. they moved over to Seattle. But yep. um, um, I mean, in addition to like tasting my dad's homebrew, you know, which I was his official taste tester okay. until he fired me because. You know, I was, I was always saying it's pretty good dad. Cause I'm four or five years old. And then, and then to test my palate, he put some vinegar into one of the samples. And you're and like, yeah, it's pretty it. good. And I was like, it's pretty good. And he's like, you're fired. You can't even taste difference. I'm like, no, it was kind of sour, but I, you know, I was ahead of my time. You know, it's just a sour beer. Um, anyway, um, uh, I can, I, I do vividly remember. I mean, you know, I was, I was not, eight, I was not 21. I was 12 right. or 13, right. but I can remember having, um, Hale's pale ale, um, uh, my dad, we went to this, you know, their restaurant, the brew pub and, you know, I had, my dad had a pint and gave me a taste. And I just remember that like intense, um, you know, it's just like a Chinook kind of like very, very like bitter, bitter grapefruit, yep. hoppy freshness. And, you know, honestly, like I was, I was hooked. Um, it, it took me a long time through multiple careers in different you know cities to finally come to, Hey, I'm gonna open my own brewery, but, uh, yeah. You know, something about that West Coast Pale Ale early on kind of nice. stuck in my brain. So one of the things that stands out about KCBC is that it, it was founded by three home brewers. How did you meet your co-founders, Pete Langell and Tony Bellis? Good question. Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, all, all three of us moved to New York City. Um, uh, none of us are natives here, but we all kind of ended up here um, uh, in the early 2000s. Um, uh, and... Um, Around that time, New York City, you know, population eight or nine million, um, uh, did not have much of a local beer scene. Um, it was, uh, you know, a Brooklyn brewery. Uh, I think Six Pointed maybe was just opening up uh, mid two thousands, two thousand six or five right. or something like yeah. that. Seven maybe. Um, Chelsea Beer Company was 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 operating, um, uh, but you know, uh, it it and Brooklyn Brewery, obviously. Sorry, but the um, the the homebrew scene was really active, and you know, I, I can remember going to the New York city home brewers club meeting, um, in 2007 at this funky little bar in the East village called, called burp castle, um, <laughs> specialized Belgian beer. And anyway, the, the, the New York city home brewers guild has been around for a really long time. And I mean, people like Garrett Oliver have come through there. Uh, Michael Kane who came brewing, um, lots of people, um, who, you know, were living in New York city, discovered a passion for craft beer and, um, went on to do awesome things. And, and again, the, the, the community at that, at that point was, was really kind of taking off. Um, and, uh, it was a great kind of like network of, of people who all had a, a passion for, for flavorful, flavorful beer. And, you know, we're, we were seeking it out. Uh, we were, we were having competitions and doing our own thing and, and all that experimentation, I think really kind of fostered this, like, uh, this, ex- this, this hope and this, this kind of like inspiration for creating a more, uh, a more, you know, kind of like, you know, well-rounded New York city craft beer scene. And people like, like, uh, Chris Kuzme at fifth hammer, he opened a brewery, uh, Basil and Kevin to Finback, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of people. And then obviously Pete and Tony, my partners, um, they, um, they were, uh, also, uh, people that, you know, there was a homebrew club in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn bruisers. And anyway, you know, that, that whole scene kind of like, brought us together uh, into what ultimately became KCBC. What were the three of you doing for careers before you guys opened KCBC? Yeah, we were, um, uh, 
you know, I was working in advertising, you know, I, I done a lot of uh, video production work and editing and some directing. And then that kind of led into an, an advertising career, which was for about 10 years um, in London and New York. Uh, Tony uh, had been working for Starbucks for a long time and it does some other retail work and some HR development stuff. Um, he has an econ major in, in college. So he had kind of the sort of finance HR on-prem expertise. Um, and Pete um, was working as a, as a biochemist um, oh, for, okay. for a lab. So it was sort of a pharmaceutical company. And, and between the sort of, you know, hard science, marketing, advertising, you know, HR, finance, uh, on-prem, the, the, the hospitality retail perspective that, that, that Tony brought, uh, it, it, it really worked, um, worked well in terms of the balanced skill set that, that we needed to, to launch the brewery and, and get things going. Yeah, it absolutely sounds like but, you had like three necessary components for a great business like yeah. kind, of, kind of come all together yeah. and meet yeah so brooklyn has a very storied history in beer brewing in america thanks to the german yeah. and austrian immigrants who settled there by 1904 bushwick and nearby williamsburg boasted 44 breweries and 10 percent of the nation's beer was being brewed in brooklyn in your neighborhood of bushwick there was there was a brewer's row where there were 14 yeah. breweries operating within a 14 block area but then obviously 1976 saw the closing of that last of the breweries in Brooklyn when yeah. Schaefer and Rheingold closed. Yeah. It wasn't until you guys opened in 2016 that Bushwick once again had a brewery. How important was it to be the first brewery back in Bushwick and to be part of the Brooklyn's revival as a beer brewing mecca? I mean, it was, it was huge. I mean, you know, uh, this, this Bushwick neighborhood um, obviously has been through a lot. Um, uh, you know, the, the kind of um, downturn of the late seventies and eighties was really rough on this neighborhood. I mean, I tell people um, old timers who yeah. may not live in Bushwick anymore that we have this, you know, we opened a brewery in Bushwick and they look at me like I'm crazy. Like that's what, you know, yeah. because for, for a long time, you know, it was one of the most dangerous yep. um, crime ridden uh, neighborhoods in, in the city. Um, you know, people were getting shot literally daily, um, cops didn't really, really want to go here. Um, and you know, in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, obviously Williamsburg started to take off and, you know, honestly, I, I, I truly believe that Brooklyn brewery, um, having a physical location in, in Williamsburg <clears throat> proved actually, be, <laughs> excuse me, proved actually be a, um, a really good, um, uh, uh, kind of, uh, element that helped, help, help create some, some, some state stability and um, kind of revitalize the neighborhood. Um, excuse me. I'm going to have a beer. No problem. <laughs> a early, but, you know, <laughs> mm. yes. All right. I'm good now. It is the beer hour. So, uh, yes. It's beer hour. I mean, come on, right? You know, a lot of time. Um, the, uh, we, we, you know, I was aware of that. We were aware of that. And when we were looking at real estate options, um, you know, Bushwick, because we all knew, we all knew the history. <clears throat> excuse me. We knew the beer history there. Um, it really felt like um, somewhere where, um, where we wanted to make that the home for KCBC. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, it still has a lot of those kind of like, um, gritty industrial roots. Um, our block right here on Troutman street, we've got a, a, a paper, a paper warehouse company. We've got, um, a steel company that's still, you know, building okay. huge beams and, and factory work like that. Um, but it's also starting to evolve into, you know, some more trendier restaurants. And I mean, I think some of the stuff you guys seen in, in Wynwood is, is, is probably a, a similar version of, of, of the evolution of what once was a neighborhood here that, 
that had a, I mean, again, the, the, the manufacturing heyday of, of, of Bushwick was, 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 was awesome. You know, it was, it was packed with, with, with small breweries, larger breweries, even after prohibition, some of the smaller ones did stick around. Um, again, for us, uh, uh, it felt like a really natural fit. Um, New York city is, there is no cheap real estate anywhere no, anymore. There, no. there hasn't been for a while. No. So it's not like we were like, we got a great deal. It was, right. it was, you know, it, uh, landlords are, are savvy. Um, but, um, it, it really, um, felt great to, to be able to, to brew our beer here, um, to kind of be a part of, of bringing that back. Um, there are other people that are now, I think, um, in the, in the works, brew some planning in the neighborhood. And uh, honestly, like the beer scene in Brooklyn right now, is is i think honestly no offense one of the best in the nation you know? no i i agree i would agree with that for sure i mean and yeah so you guys are definitely seeing a revitalization of, yeah. of the bushwick area because kind of same thing here in, in winwood like yeah. my, you know like growing up and then moving back and even when i was like finishing out high school like yeah you would not drive through winwood and if you did, right. it was by accident, and it was as fast as possible. It also was up, not. You know? Winwood is a very trendy name for it now. It was not called no. Winwood. Right. It was called <laughs> Overtown. It was still part of Overtown. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, it was still part of Overtown. Yeah, but wow. you know, now we have fifteen apartment buildings and trendy, you know, yeah. restaurants and stuff. But I mean, it's it's yeah. definitely cool to see like these re- sure. you know, revitalizations of these old neighborhoods to be. Yeah something better and, yeah. and great. I mean, I think beer, beer plays a big role, you know, I mean, again, this is, this is, this is something we talked about the idea of a third space and, you know, like the, 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 you know, people stuck in tiny apartments and even, you know, and I think for a, a lot of the, the historical heydays of, of the, the brewing scene in, in Bushwick, you know, immigrant families, um, you know, would flock to these, these German beer gardens in Bushwick that were just a little bit of, 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 uh, maybe outdoor space. Maybe it was just a big beer hall, but it, it offered a chance for, for, for communities to gather young people, old people. Um, and, and again, I think that in this day and age of like, you know, it, it's easy to get stuck in your phone, especially yes. with COVID yeah. and to get stuck inside. Um, uh, honestly, the, 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 the role that beer and breweries and tap rooms, I think play in, in bringing people together, um, it's really, I think it's really important. It's yes, one of the reasons why we really got into this, you know? Uh, absolutely. So what was the initial idea behind KCBC? Like, how did you mm-hmm. plan to have three creative brewers working under one brand? Oh, good. Good question. Yeah. You know, honestly, it was, um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's evolved a lot, honestly, since, since the early days. Um, it, it, um, it, the, the simplest way we kind of thought about it was, you know, take, take Voltron or, or as an example, you know, you've got, <laughs> okay. you've got, your, I you know, I so you've, got your, you've got your, you've got your, you've got individual, you know, uh, um, uh, Pieces. uh personalities right, and, yeah. and creative, yeah. um, uh, ideas and the ability to, to, um, autonomously maybe, you know, defeat the bad guy or whatever. Uh, if you can, if you can manage to put them all together, um, in a, in a harmonious way, you obviously have something that's greater than, than the sum of its parts. And, you know, uh, for, for the most part, the better part of like kind of the first year or two years, even, um, we really did kind of stick with this concept of, of rotating recipe design, um, and, and trying to, um, play supporting roles even across our sort of subspecialties. You know, Pete was in charge of production. Um, Tony was in charge of, uh, kind of finance and the on-premise tap, tap room. And I was in charge of marketing and, and uh, sort of overall sales. Um, but you know, Tony might have a beer idea and then I might help with the, the brew that day. And then 
Pete might come up with a sales lead and vice versa. Um, and I think that that kind of dynamic, um, certainly for us for the early days, I think it did sort of, um, uh, it was, it was a conversation starter. It did, it was a little bit different. Um, uh, these days, uh, yeah, we have a bigger team and, and we really try to kind of like trust even our own staff to be, um, to be really involved in, in, in even some of the creativity. Um, our head brewer, Bobby, he's been with us since the first days. Um, uh, we hired him as a, as a delivery guy and tap room bartender. And now he's our head brewer and, um, you know, uh, people like, like Dan, who he's yes. for us now. So you guys, right. um, we, we, we love, we love the, the sort of, um, uh, spirit of, of a collective in, in the sense of, you know, uh, good ideas can come from anywhere. And we want to try to encourage people to take ownership and, and be involved. Um, cause you know, it's like you guys, we're a small business yep. and you know, yep. uh, it, it, you need people to be able to wear multiple hats. Um, and, and, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think when you, when you can, you can, um, uh, encourage people to, to be, uh, creative and have ideas, right. um, you can, you can, you can do some pretty cool stuff. Absolutely. You're listening to the beer hour and we're talking to Zach Kinney of KCBC. How did you guys go about the finance, the build out of the brewery in a yeah. 5,000 square foot warehouse in Bushwick? I, you know, it wasn't easy, honestly, the, uh, the, um, the, and, and, you know, we, we had done enough kind of general homework, um, to have a sense of like, okay, this is probably going to cost a lot of money and we're going to need to have more than we think we will need. Um, and we talked to some of our friends and, and kind of gotten us a, a ballpark sense. Um, but you know, every, every construction project, every real estate location is going to be different. Um, at, at least for us here, um, n- there's, there's no spaces in New York that are actually like a white box. You just go in and it's like, you do whatever you want. Um, there's, there's the, there's the department of buildings, there's building codes, there's, there's different architects giving you different opinions about how to, how to solve something. Um, there's landlords uh, who are really friendly and flexible and there's landlords who are not. Um, we, we had a really good landlord. We still have our, our, our landlord. Um, we don't own the space. Um, we're renting still. Um, but our landlord's name is, is, is a Bushwick native. He's, he grew up in the neighborhood and he was really excited and, and supportive of us coming in as, as manufacturing business, um, making something and, and, and producing a product as well as having a community space and, um, his name is Gary Janiac. He comes around. We named one of our Pilsners after him, the Janiac Maniac, because that used to be his nickname. He's got <laughs> stories of like runnings with the mob. I mean, he used to have a garbage. I mean, this guy's got like, you know, <laughs> he, he, was, he lived through like the early heydays, the real dark downturns. And then, you know, uh, saw this building available at an auction, bought it for like pennies, you know, right, and, you know, obviously is a smart guy, but, um, but we did a mix, you know, I mean, the SBA, uh, small business association, um, does offer, um, loans and, you know, through a, through a combination of, 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 uh, about half of our financing came from the SBA loan, um, a seven, a loan, um, which, you know, uh, is designed to really be there for small businesses that might not have oodles of cash or, right. you know, really strong commercial credit ratings that will allow for commercial lenders. We talked to a few bigger lenders, you know, um, but ended up going with, um, a company that kind of specializes in, in New York city and small businesses. Um, they were called the NYBDC. Now they're called pursuit lending. Um, and they were so, uh, uh, supportive. Um, we had to, we had to raise half of the financing ourselves through our own cash and friends and family, but they were able to, they were able to match that. That's awesome. Um, and you know, it, it, it taught us a lot about, uh, about, about construction. Uh, we did, yeah. 
work with the general contractor, but we did also GC some of the parts ourselves, um, you know, construction demo, uh, concrete, yep. you know, it's all it's, a lot. Yeah, it's a lot, man. It's a lot. I think it's a lot more than what people actually think it is. It, it, it was, it was, it was, it was such a uh, challenging moment. Honestly, that those, those, the, that we, we took about signed our lease in 2015 in the fall. And I think we were, we were producing beer about nine months later, which I think is honestly pretty good. That's we fast. Pretty, That's fast. pretty happy about that. Yeah. And, and again, it, it came from, from being able to do a good amount of homework ahead of time and having a landlord that was pretty hands off and was like, you do, you got to do, you know? Right. Um, it, it was, it was, you know, dusty, dirty, cold, and you're coming in every day and you know, you're trying to get the plumber to agree with the concrete guy and they're, they're arguing about something and <laughs> you're just like, oh, can I just make beer? Right. Can, um, can we just hurry up and get learn, this done? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So out of the gate, which of your beers became like those popular hits for you guys from that jump? Um, so we brewed, um, uh, no surprise, a hazy IPA was our first beer. Um, and even in that time, 2016, I felt like it was still just kind of starting to really, yes. really rock it yes. up. Yes. Um, but I, you know, I've been, I've been really home brewing a lot of, uh, a lot of wild beer, a lot of sour beers. The second or third beer that we brewed, uh, is, is still a beer that we brew every summer. It's called beach zombie. It's a strawberry guava kettle sour. And I know you guys love the kettle sours yes. and do some amazing ones. Um, and honestly, you know, this concept of like really heavy fruit um, um, to, to create uh, a really fresh, tropical, low ABV, Berliner Weiss style beer with a, with a more modern, you know, American craft well, exactly. beer, you know, bite uh, to it, accentuated, yes. accentuated fruit character. Um, and we, you know, we, we, uh, we used, uh, at that point, a, a lacto brevis culture, I believe, you know, it was like, drums of strawberry and guava. Cause I was like, we need more, you know, and, 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 you know, the challenges of that first beer of trying to figure out how to get the fruit in with the pump and the <laughs> forklift. Yes. And like, I mean, I feel like there was a moment where I was like on a forklift on it, you know, don't tell OSHA, you know, right. Like, of course. Trying to figure out yes. how to like get I've been the there. fruit out of the, you know, <laughs> you I've know. been there. Um, but, but, but people loved it. And I think like, honestly, like this neighborhood and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a heavy uh, Latino community here um, historically and, and still to this day. And they were really excited about it. Beer nerds were really excited about it. Uh, and honestly, like our fruited sour uh, portfolio and that, that has become something that, that I think we are, we are relatively known for here in New York city. And um, our, this beach zombie beer turned into this whole zombie series. We do beer called bride of beach zombie. Every Christmas we do beer called jingle zombie. Right. You know, we try to have fun with, with kind of these sort of spinoffs and, and our, and our label artist who's, who's, you know, super comic booky yes. style with yep. his, with his, with his treatment um, has a lot of fun with, with, right. with the, with the zombie beers. So um, that one took off. So next time we do a collab, it needs to be a fruited sour or an IPA because Dan always pushes like Baltic porters and lagers. And I like, you know, <laughs> I, know. I, I want to go to I sleep, know. dude. I, I want to go to sleep. I know. I mean, you know, we, I know we've got you guys, you guys are coming up to New York for, for green city, but yeah. I, I think the idea of doing a, doing a big ass fruited sour, I, I have this idea of doing a beer call. That's like an incredible Hulk spinoff, you know, like yes. incredible, incredible pulp, incredible gulp. Yeah. One of those yes. two. Um, okay. that'd be fun. Yeah. Please no more lagers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I mean, our, I mean, we did brew, we did brew a lager. I think, our uh, second, yes. I think the yeah. other beer, IP, yeah. IPA, uh, Pilsner, Janiac, Maniac was Pilsner, and then yeah. Beach Zombie. Nice. Uh, and you know, like, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're in the midst of KCBC Lager Appreciation Month, which is oh, a yeah. whole other. No, like, I mean, lagers are on a major but, rise for sure. <laughs> they are, but yeah. I mean, you know, 
we can do lagers all day long. But I think a little, yeah, you know, yeah, a little yeah, spice yeah. to it by we throw some fruit and something. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so for sure, what's next for you guys? What's next for KCBC? Yeah. What's on the horizon for you guys? I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a lot of of really kind of refining. I think we're at a point now where for for the first um, five years, I think I was doing the math. You know, we've we've produced at least 250 different beers, which is sort of like the average of like a beer per week yep. um, over five and a half years. Yep. Um, and man, that's fun, but man, that's exhausting. Oh, and oh. <laughs> it's so exhausting. And what, what I, what I'm, what I'm really excited about both for, for our brand and, and for our team here. And then also for, for kind of the future of craft beer as I see it, at least here in New York city and, and kind of beyond is that, um, people are, are as excited and eager to try something new as ever, but they're also really, I think, discovering tried and true kind of, uh, stalwart flagshipy type, uh, favorites. Yep. You know, we have a hazy IPA that we have been brewing really consistently for the past three years, that's starting to kind of solidify and grow um, our, our production capacity there. Uh, but we're launching a year-round lager this year. We've talked about another year-round year sour as well, or at least like a consistent seasonal. So this kind of concept of when we first started KCBC, we were we were very anti-flagship. We were like, we're not going to have a flagship. We're going to be the brewery that, that you never get bored of, that you can constantly create. And with our tap room, we still do that. And honestly, our brew team is is, is remarkably adept at like, Ooh, that little, you know, we have a couple of smaller eight barrel tanks, seven and a half barrel tanks. And like, Ooh, that was empty. Can we just try something? I'm like, yeah, let's try it. You know, tap right. will swallow it up. Right. But, um, I think there's a lot more opportunity now as we mature and as the, as the kind of the market matures to really kind of perfect some of these, some of these beers that, that we brewed a few times. And, and now that there's, I think a, an appetite for us to be able to brew them more regularly, I'm loving the ability for us to, to, to really, brew the best version of that and um, and to be able to repeat that yeah. um there's always going to be i think plenty of time for for curveballs and, mm-hmm. and unexpected ideas and, and collaborations are never going away you know i no, mean i absolutely. think they're 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 always going to be there fun but again you know I'm, I'm really enjoying a little bit of the kind of consistency right. and let's dial in Stability. the efficiency let's mm, yep. yeah you know um, and maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm old. No, 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 no. <laughs> actually, we're in the same yeah. thought, same boat. I mean, we're going yeah. on eight years now and yeah. starting last year, we started bringing back beers that people really demanded and started putting yeah. them on like an annual release and kind yeah. of tailoring back how many new beers we were releasing. Yeah. Because like you said, it gets very exhausting. And I think our portfolio at this point was like almost 500 different beers that we brewed yeah. and, and yeah. like to keep going and trying to do a yeah. new beer every week or two new beers every yeah. week is just like, it's mentally yeah. taxing. Yeah. We've kind of, you know, kind of find out like, it's like you need that solidarity, that consistency yeah. and people want it too. Like, yeah, Hey, they're happy about yeah. the new, uh, fruited sour that came yeah. out, but yo, what happened to that one that you guys brewed last year? That was really yeah. great. Can we have that again? Yeah. And we're getting more yeah. and more and more of that. So we've gone back yeah. to that, and I think a lot of people like yourselves and, yeah. and, and us are doing that because that's what people yeah. want. You know, they were happy about, you know, all these brand-new beers, but yeah. what about the really good stuff that you made? Like, why don't you bring yeah. that back? And I think that's kind of yeah. where the whole craft beer market is going. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, I, think, I think that's, that's so true. And, you know, I think the other, the other kind of angle that I feel like is, is, is also becoming increasingly important for, for, you know, small brewers like us and you guys and kind of these mid-sized brewers who, yes. who have been around for a few years or new brewers that are starting up is, you know, the, 
the, the, the real, real kind of um, heightened importance of, of the on-premise hospitality, the, yep. the, the experience yes. of, of, of being able to um, uh, go to that brewery as, as a customer and as the brewery owner and as the team that are managing that experience, um, really, really, really going above and beyond. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, there's a lot of things for people to do in the world or on their phone or on the yep. internet yep. and you know, yeah. NFTs and the whole world of <laughs> what cool, cool stuff. I want to, I want to be able to, I want our company to be able to yeah. offer a real life experience, um, concrete experience with delicious tasting beverage that you right. can actually put in your actual body. Um, and, and being able to, to really um, prioritize that, that part of the business, yes. um, I think is another, another opportunity for us in the future as we grow. That's awesome, man. Well, I really want to thank you for your time, Zach. You. It is, uh, it's been awesome to speak to you and, uh, yeah, man. <laughs> kind of a little bit of reminisce, but, uh, thank you very much for yeah, joining I mean, the show you today. Know, I mean, we're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, get, meet up in, in Washington state one of these days on, <laughs> on the football field and see if we got it. So, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thank dude. you very much for your I time. I really bro. appreciate it. I really appreciate you guys having me. Um, we love everything you guys are doing. Uh, please keep it up. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks so much. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is an accomplished opera singer and composer, as well as a couture designer. The fashions of her couture fashion house, Eltara Casada, have graced both the runway and red carpet. In 2019, her duet with Danny Hagen, You Are Moving Me, peaked at number 21 on the Billboard dance charts. Her TEDx talk last December about finding the melody of one's life has had over 200,000 views. She recently trended on social media and garnered mainstream media attention for sitting courtside at an NBA playoff game in a striking red Miami Heat gown, leaving throngs of basketball fans wondering who she is. We're about to find out. Welcome to the Bureau, Red Miller Lolly. Thank you very much for joining us today in the tap room. We're uh, very excited to actually have you here in presence. So, Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So we'll kind of dive right in. So as we learn from your TED Talk, your mother played an important role in your love of making both music and clothes. Can you give us a sense of how your mother influenced your eventual career path? I feel as a parent, you have to give unconditional love to your child. And from there, the child will believe they can do anything they want. I, 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 agree, I agree with that. I have three kids, so I constantly try to breathe life and uh, encouragement into whatever they do. So I definitely, definitely would agree with that. Um, is she surprised that you are so successful in the two fields of endeavor at, at, at the same time? My mom is the proudest mother in the world, but then at the same time, she keeps me very humble. She's <laughs> like, well, you know, it's nice, but you can do this. <laughs> You know, but that's what keeps me humble, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess a little bit of humility is a good thing, you know what I mean? So we don't grow too big. I mean, my, my father did that to me as well. So I, I, <laughs> I kind of know where you're coming from. You were born in Moscow. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you came to the, like, the United States? United States, I was um, 19. Before that, I was in London. Oh, really? You were but, I, but I did grow up in Moscow, so I remember very well everything. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and why did you end up moving here to the States after being in London? You know, I always dreamed to live in New York. And ah. um, 
I don't know, just American dream. And uh, <laughs> I had a relationship here too. So it was just the uh, right time, right moment. And I always listened to my heart. And I just remember waking up that morning. I had an opportunity to move to Paris. I was modeling at that point. And uh, I was like, nope, I have to move to California. And I started with California. Really? So where, L.A.? No, La Jolla, actually. Really? La Jolla? Uh-huh. Ah, so you went from London to New York to La Jolla. Mm-hmm. No, 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 not New York yet. Um, oh, La Jolla no. was first. La Jolla was first. Mm-hmm. How, how did you like California? It was amazing, but La Jolla is very, obviously, different in yes. L.A., yes. and uh, it was very family-oriented. I think it was an amazing transition um, to move to the United States. It was, it was beautiful, but I always wanted to live in New York. I mean, I was 19. That's kind of what you want to fun, and not just fun, but action, and also New York can give you that uh, career opportunities, I feel like, especially the world I wanted to be in, right. classical world. And um, But it was a great step um, to move to La Jolla first and then New York, because I think I would have been a little bit overwhelmed with New York. How long were you in California? Um, just a couple of years. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then when did you end up moving to New 2007. York? 2007. Really? Mm-hmm. So along this whole process of growing up and making these moves, how, how old were you when you realized that you had this extraordinary voice? Oh, thank you. Um, growing up, I would sing around the house, like these big notes, but... I didn't. I knew that I can do this big notes, but I didn't know what opera is actually. <laughs> and <laughs> okay. uh, I was um, actually. I remember going to this uh, lady. You know, very classical, very uh, old school Russian lady, and she was like, um, "Okay, little girl, what do you?" Uh, what uh, What else do you do? I go. Well, you know, I love designing, and she goes, "Well, maybe stick with that." <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm, uh, of course, I mean, who wants to hear that at right. like 12? And um, right. my mom was like, oh, don't listen to her. That's what I love my mom for. And, uh, but being, having a big voice doesn't mean you can go on stage. Well, especially for me, it wasn't like that. You have to have a lot of training. Uh, my teachers would describe me, she has this wild, big voice, but you have to control it. And actually, for me, it was harder than somebody else. I'm not saying that somebody who has a smaller voice, it's easier, but it is in a way to control it, certain areas. But for me, it was... How do you sing? How do you pronounce these words? And, um, you know, it was a little bit challenging, but then training is everything. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is in anything, you know, in singing, sports, anything. It's all about how much training and time you put into that effort. Opera, you know, strikes me as one of the most demanding forms of singing. Other forms like pop, rock, and jazz seem to be more forgiving. Can you give our listeners a sense of the discipline and training that goes into the craft of opera singing? Uh, when I have shows, I don't, you don't see me anywhere for about two weeks prior. And um, I have to have all kind of vocal exercises, two, three hours a day, just warm-ups. That's the way I like to, because I feel prepared when I'm on stage. And uh, things can go wrong, but at least I know my voice is not going to go wrong. And, um, I mean, it's all kind of, I, I drink vegetable broth, I have uh, throat sprays, I have honey, lemon. I mean, it's just uh, ginger shots and... Uh, but I'm a little extreme. Whatever I do, I'm very... <laughs> I'm just being honest. Not everybody no, needs to no, do I that. No, I mean... I mean, hey, listen. Uh, it sounds familiar. John is very extreme with anything that he does. Well, I, I mean, you're not the only person that I've talked to that takes extremes. I mean, what, uh, a week and a half ago, I was sitting on a couch with Tom Brady. Talk about extremes. I mean, the guy does extremes to be where he's at at his age. So it's actually very common for somebody that is in a top of their profession what the extremes they go to to stay there i always this is a a discussion that uh me and maria have obviously i i love music 
she loved music, you know, has a background in some music. Not obviously not at the same level, no, no. but we always talk about ranges. How many how many ranges do you have? Um, do I speak in musical, uh, musical. format? Okay, yes. I can go from G to let's say C sharp. So, um, I mean, it's. I'm not saying that I have the biggest range. Being honest, no. It's uh, to me. I mean, you c- you can have amazing, more talented people out there. I'm very, but I work hard on my right. skills, right. and um, also the color of the voice is very different too, uh, because you can have amazing ranges, but <clears throat> do they sound good when they go too high? So I like to even compose. I compose around my voice, and um, meaning what. You know, we all have sweet notes in right. our throat, so... Right, so where that is actually where you're at. That's that's yeah. your wheelhouse, Yes. per se. And also, you want to be able to sing that C-sharp in the studio and actually perform it live, because it's very different when you're performing live. <laughs> <laughs> we always talk about that, you know, like, you know, when you go to concerts. Yeah. You know, here you're, you hear somebody on the radio, or you hear somebody on... Uh, well, CDs would be old now. <laughs> well, I have cassettes, so I'm cassettes, good. You know. on, an, on an edited, recorded, you right. know, in a studio versus on stage, right. it's, it can I mean, sound very different. there's been plenty of times I've been to very big performances, and you're like, wow, this guy sounds nothing, or she sounds nothing like she did on her record, you know? Right. So I think that's actually a very important task. Like, if you sound very much like what you do in the studio, it's amazing. But it takes a lot of work, like you're it's saying. It's a lot of work, and that's why I like to, like going back to, I like to compose my own and produce my own music because wow. okay. when you work with someone else, they create something. They don't even know, can you sing that? And They don't really listen to your voice. And it doesn't mean, like, you can hear amazing jazz singers. They sing, like, you don't have to sing, like, for, you know, for octave voice, you know, to sound beautiful. It's about that sweet notes in your own voice. So you actually compose your I own compose music? everything, So that, yeah. I mean, that just takes it to another level. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because not everybody can compose their own stuff. I mean, that's another talent. And So were you in opera singing when you went to New York from La Jolla? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've performed quite a few big, big places. Yeah, thank you. Oh, well, actually, um, my career started later. Um, so that's why I don't believe in... I mean, it's great if you can find your path at 18, right. perfect. But I do believe if you actually find your path later, a little bit in age, you can sustain it better. Right. Because also you kind of choose the right people around you, your team. And right. um, you also know who you are and what's your strengths and how you can, um, you know, because this show business, I mean, I'm being honest, I haven't gotten a lot of like critic, but you know, you still have criticism a lot. And in the, if you pay attention to it and if you're not strong enough, it might break you. Oh, yeah. So in a way it's better um, to... For me, it was better to st- start it later. So for years, I realized I don't, I didn't want to like sing exactly like the opera, um, meaning to be in the sh- in um, actual um, uh, production, uh, opera production. So I decided I wanted to do my own music. But that took also five years or six years for me to find my own voice. What's my past? My own stories? My right. own experience? So when I sing now, it's actually some of it, not all my experience, but still, it's like the part of my life what I've lived. Wow, that's amazing. So the story goes that people at your operatic performances were taken not only by your voice, but also by your clothes. (laughs) How did the idea to start designing your own clothes come about? Well, I would do my own um, costume. Well, not costumes, dresses, because in New York City, a lot of it I had, I would say, social life. So I would always go to events, charity events, and part of my... Also, I believe strengths is socializing and making connections because it's not just about the talent. It's about how you get booked. So I would go to a lot of events and I would create my own 
gowns and people would always ask me who's a designer who's a designer and I didn't want to tell them because first of all back in the day I feel like 15 years ago you couldn't have a dual career people didn't take you seriously especially if you sing opera they're like are you an opera singer you're a designer what, what is going on here you know <laughs> so I got a lot of that so I'm right. like I'm just going to tell them so I would say it's vintage I lied, but (laughs) (laughs) so it was because I didn't want for them to start asking what a designer, then they can't find it. Right. Um, So and then about seven years into it, I people kept asking, and I said, "Well, you know what? Actually, it's been me. I've designed all these dresses, and uh, whatever you see, it's my creations." And I would go to Thirty Eighth Street, buy the fabrics in the morning, create something out of it, and wear them. So it was it was a fun experience. Um, And then I decided, what if I do a fashion show where I would perform my songs and have models walk in my creations? So actually, every uh, song lyrics would match each piece. So it would like connection between wow. those things. That's amazing. So a, a quick definition for our listeners who might have brewery t-shirts on right now. <laughs> Couture describes handmade and as one of a kind, one of a kind clothes. Correct. Yes. So how does one go about getting those first few clients? Well, um, I want to tell you something. Um, it's business, so you have to invest money. You right. know, and I'm just being realistic. You need to have connections, and I would suggest reach out to your friends who has a social media following, yeah. create something for them. That's where it starts. You start getting, you need to have images. You need to have people to show that actually other people wearing it. Uh, you know, any business needs some kind of financial, and I don't want to imagine like, oh, no, you could be lucky, but th- that wasn't my case, so I would have to reach out to my, um, can you wear this, and we take pictures, and from there on, it just grew, and then people start realizing, oh, it's actually good and nice quality, and then I start getting clients. So, I mean, like, both of your worlds obviously take a lot of work to get to where you are, and some breaks and, and other things that go into that. In 2016, your two worlds came together beautifully when you released your debut album four stories at the standard hotel mm-hmm. during an exclusive gala concert at carnegie hall <laughs> can you describe that the audience what did they experience that night i think it was the first time for them to see what radmilla vision was because for years they heard oh i'm gonna you know i don't want to do the class i mean i love classical opera but i want to do contemporary and for right. them to see something like it was a it was just the beginning, really, because obviously I um, express myself even more now. But it was a beginning for me, too. So it was. I remember being on stage and all those you know, hours when people kind of you know, doubted you. And then that feeling, just standing there, everything is worth it. That, <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I'm also going to jump into that you actually recently broke the Internet during the game <laughs> of NBA playoffs with, with Rocco's beloved Philly 76ers and... Maria's Miami Heat. Tell us about that striking red gown that you wore courtside that night. Actually, I created that gown because I've been a season ticket holder for three years before COVID, and uh, I created that dress before COVID. And I would always, people didn't really notice me, but I always dress up when I go because it's just who I am. And so every game, and I don't miss, maybe I miss five games a season. Oh, wow. Oh, so, okay. I mean, I'm, and I'm there before You're National diehard. Anthem, and I leave, you know. You're a diehard. When, yes. <laughs> And if I'm going to do something, it has to go away, you know. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I would, um, but I, then I was, I remember thinking, what if I can do something fun, but, you know, obviously uh, support my team. And uh, not because I don't want to wear jerseys, it's just I wanted to create something my own. And uh, so I 
call um, when Alana bought fourteen extra 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 large so it's more material. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. um, yeah, and different names of players. Right. Actually, one of uh, the jerseys was none. None is not right, there anymore. Right. But I already created. I mean, right. it's three years ago, and um, yeah. So that was that's when it was made, and uh, it just being in my showroom for all these years and I was waiting for it to show but when would I, would I show it you know uh, and uh, playoffs is the best time yes I mean <laughs> uh, obviously it worked it worked in your favor and the Heat's favor because you know you guys destroyed the 76ers uh-uh. so uh <laughs> Well, you're a Celtics fan, right? I am. I know. I know. We're this playing is gonna it be, tonight. I know. I know. This is gonna be. This is gonna be a good one for sure. And we have home court advantage. I, so I, sorry, John. I know that. I'm sorry. I know that. Hey, listen. You know, I, I still have to keep faith, but I mean, the team is very. The Heat's great. You know what I mean. And obviously, her dress oh. is is a spark to adding fire to that. You know oh. what I mean. Um, so, in addition to trending on social media. Sports Illustrated and other mainstream media sought to satisfy people's curiosity about who the woman in the red Miami <laughs> Heat gown was. Were you surprised by the attention that it drew? Um, yes, because I don't think of myself as, um, I mean, I just wear my clothes and I sing for, can I say, for my soul, I would say. And I mean, it's great that people recognize, like, um, I think I mentioned it um one of my interviews that 98% was very positive. And to me, I only do it for people that believe in me. I don't do it for the 2%. Right. I don't really care, you know. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I saw some comments. I mean, I just ignore it because to me, it's about uh, why would I give any time of 2% and 98 forget about, you know. I mean, I, I mean, the adage is, I mean, if you don't have any haters, then you're not doing it right. Yeah. I mean that's I mean that's the way it goes. I mean exactly, and most of those haters, I'm sorry to say, but if they would be busy, they wouldn't be writing. <laughs> you know, just so kind of. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I I absolutely do agree with that. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to Red Miller Lolly. I mean, did you really think you? I mean, the the dress was amazing. I mean, you're, not, you're also six foot tall, so <laughs> it's a, it's a striking, imposing figure. So I mean. You're definitely going to, you know, draw attention. I mean, in such a great way, I think, for yourself and for the team. Out of that, did you get any orders? I mean, I think Maria wants one. Well, uh, right now, it's this uh, something like this is actually not uh, for sale. It's just okay. for me to wear. Ah, okay. Uh, but, you know, look, if I have enough requests, maybe something when I get a deal. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. So, you've sang the national anthem before at... A heat game. Mm-hmm. How did you become such an avid fan of the Miami Heat? Was there a particular player that you admired, or is it just the game of basketball and you being in Miami itself? When I moved to Miami, my partner, um, he played college basketball, but he's in uh, finance, and he was uh, saying, okay, we have Miami. I mean, we knew, fr- we knew people, but Obviously, what's Miami? Miami Heat. Right. Then I have Frost Music School, Art Center. And so I always like to look at what is uh, culture of the city. Of and uh, so he mentioned, he goes, hey, um, he's friends with uh, one of ex-basketball um, players from the Heat. And um, he called him and he said, hey, do you have anything you know, available for the court side? And uh, we went and it was actually available. Wow. And uh, we got the seats. And I was, you know, I was very new to the game. I didn't know much about basketball. I'm just being honest. I was into a lot of in New York was all about music and fashion. Um, that course. was my that is main York. thing. Just and uh, when I started going, I started realizing how exciting and how much. I mean, I I know 
how can I say? I know basic of basketball. I don't want to say you know. I know enough now, but right. it's so much to it. Right. It's like endless, just like music theory. So to right. me, I don't have a specific player that I'm okay. That's a player because to me, it's just like composition. Yes. You need to have um, wind section. You need to have string section to make a beautiful composition of yes. basketball. I agree. So I, maybe next up, we might have to try to. See if we can guide you into like football next. Okay, well let's <laughs> let's step by step. Okay. Exactly. No, bas- basketball is a great start. It is a great, great start. In your TED talk, you talk about finding the melody of one's life. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a person who feels like they are just going through the motions in their career and possibly their life? Well, I always say it's about routines, right? So um, I think in my TED Talk, I also mentioned we all have 10 minutes a day. And if you want to learn, um, I don't know, Spanish or Italian or it's something that you want to do, you can spend 10 minutes a day. And we all have that. Because <laughs> I don't believe when you start giving yourself um, crazy goals, you're probably not going to achieve them. So like if you say five hours a day, I'm going to st- it's probably not going to happen. 10 right. minutes, then you go, oh, you know what? Now I can make my friends visit Thailand. Maybe I can practice with them. So it becomes like your world. So I do believe um, setting tangible goals is success do you constantly challenge yourselves with with new things like that uh, too many i mean <laughs> <laughs> yes i challenge myself myself all the time but i try to i mean we only have 24 hours a day and i'm too much of a perfectionist but you know oh i'm my i'm <laughs> I, yes, I understand that as well. Um, yes, I even have, um, I have a, I don't know, let's say I do 40 things and I have a calendar on each day how much time I put into everything. So by the end of a year, I can see what I've accomplished based on that chart. Really? Mm-hmm. So you've laid it all out? For the past three years, I've been doing that, yeah. Well, actually, no. On my birthday two years ago. So now my birthday was on May 10th. This is the 30th. I'm going to start, yes. Oh, so you just had a birthday? Yes. Well, happy belated Thank birthday you. to you. <laughs> There has been a lot mentioned about your diet and exercise and overall. Can you give our listeners a breakdown of what that's like? Growing up, I always would. <clears throat> I'm very big on um, animal rights. And uh, it just starts, to, to me, it starts with me and my own habits. So um, my mom, you know, she would always, you know, eat meat. And, but it always freaked me out. And when I started realizing what it is, I just couldn't um, okay. <clears throat> eat and uh I tried, mom tried to give me fish, oh, still freaked me out. And uh, so when I really started living by myself, I was like, I can't do this. So I became a vegetarian because to me, I don't, people talk about iron deficiency and this and that, but you can figure out your own ways. And I've been doing my uh, annuals and everything comes out good because I also think body adjusts. And I'm, I mean, for me, it's like, I cannot eat meat. I just can't, you know, and uh, I wouldn't be, no. <laughs> Not for me. So what about, so you have the diet, obviously you're vegetarian, not Mm -hmm. full-blown vegan. No, I mean, I'm more vegan, but I don't want to say it because vegan is vegan. Oh, I know that. And so I'm like 80% vegan, but I say vegetarian because it's just... uh, A little more lax. Yes. A little more loose. (laughs) What about your fitness regime? Um, fitness, um, I like to do different things. And different things by meaning um, I, I box, I play tennis, I do dance. Actually, pole dancing. Um, <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. There's no, it's I actually mean, great exercise, yes, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, amount of core, <laughs> the amount of core strength you have to have for that, yeah, is, is crazy. And also, I want to... Um, incorporate that into my shows like gymnastics so i'm going um, that's what i'm training for so really? it's, yeah wow it's okay. not gymnastics but you will see you know it's not when gonna I, be like cirque du soleil kind of really yes oh 
Oh. So that's what I'm okay. training. And, um, you know, regular workouts with my trainer. And then I go to different gyms and uh, classes. But um, one-on-one, when I really want to get uh, triggered something, usually I do one-on-one with my trainers. That's amazing. That is amazing. We'll, we'll get to the hard question here now, mm-hmm. since you're sitting opposite of me. <laughs> do you have a prediction <clears throat> for the Eastern Conference Finals, my Celtics, your Heat, <laughs> in how many games? I think Heat will win because I'm a Heat fan. I'm supposed to say that, and I believe in it. Um, six. Okay. So <laughs> four to two. Okay. <laughs> I mean, right. I want to say four, but right. I also, you know. <laughs> Here, here's a better question. We saw the red dress for, for the squashing of the 76ers. Will we see the dress back at courtside, or will there be a new one? I don't know. Tonight oh. is a game. Oh. I guess we're going to have to tune in and look oh, at that court no. side. <laughs> okay. Okay. That is uh, that is quite understandable. I'm excited. I'm even more excited now. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, this thank has been you very for having me. And uh, it has been an amazing experience having you actually here in, in the tap room. And uh, good luck to your heats and oh. good luck to your career going forward. Thank you so and much. And we're definitely going to have to try to catch a show, especially now that you're going to be combining acrobatics and everything else <laughs> yeah. this, so thank you so much for coming no, yes. of course it was it's a, a pleasure. pleasure thank, thank you, you for having me that's it for this week i'd like to thank our guests zach kinney and radmila lolly our co-host maria cabre our producer rocco riggio and our editor brian o'connell thank you for listening you can catch us each friday at 7 p.m eastern time on business radio 132 or anytime on the sirius xm app or wherever you listen to podcasts please rate the show and leave it a review remember people the thirst is real